HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by craftbeer.com, dedicated to small and independent U.S. craft brewers. For more information, visit craftbeer.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Do you have a new food product, piece of tech, or idea that you want to start starting up in a new business? If you do, this episode of Tech Bites is for you. Well, good morning, podcast listeners. It is Thursday, March 30th, 2017, for everyone listening in the future. I'm Jennifer Leutzi, the host of Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we talk to innovators and influencers in the food tech space. Today, we have an interesting show. It is part of our boot camp series, where we try and take really complicated, intimidating, scary ideas and services and try and distill them into easy-to-follow, step-by-step game plans for everyone out there who is starting a business, having troubles with their technology, or just trying to get in the game. And in order for us to do that, we have a couple of very interesting, well-versed experts in our studio, two women, Liz Van, Vac, I asked her to how you say her name before we started the show, and I'm not going to pronounce it correctly. I'm going to start again. Joining us today, we have Liz Vaknin, co-founder of Our Name is Farm. Yep. I finally got a smile out of her. She's been sitting there looking very stoic and a little deer in the headlights. So a little host snafu always brings a smile to the guests. Yeah. Um, yeah, Vaknin. <laughs> Sitting next to her is Patricia Duffy, who is a food business financing consultant and mentor in the food tech space. Hi, great thanks, to be here. Thanks for coming out. It's actually a sunny-ish day and not too cold, which gives us hope that maybe spring. April coming this week might also be spring. Totally. So before we dig into the Food Biz Boot Camp, we will do like we always do at the top of the show, and go around the shipping container and talk about apps. And I will throw it to Mission Control, David Tadashore, our engineer and the HRN studio manager. David? Greetings from Mission Control. How you doing? Good. How about you? There's a really bright green flashing light on that bar that I can see through the window. Is that new, or am I just noticing it now? I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Under the pizza tote bag is some sort of bar that has green in your in your mission control under the pizza tote bag see that bar that has the green lights yes you mean the mixing board the mixing board and then that light is has that always been there since 2009 oh boy okay (laughs) yeah those are the meters i guess maybe you've never noticed them or maybe i've never talked quite as specifically to make the green lights go oh i find that hard to believe (laughs) 
Do you have an app for us? I do. We're back on the Dave Tat privacy train since Congress decided to uh, yet again. I'm sell right us there with you. To, I'm right there with um, you. Yeah. Corporations, corporate mm-hmm. interests. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I too have security in mind for my offering today. But yeah. what do you got? Well, I could go off on a spiel about their, uh, you know, lack of morals and everything. I'll just I'll stick to the to I'll stick to the app here. Uh, my new <laughs> app is um, so I, I had talked about a VPN app before, uh, but that was just sort of like a free, you know, pretty basic VPN app like. Um, Okay, so before you go any further, because I, too, was going to call out a VPN app, let's just back up a little bit and let people know what a VPN is, in case people following along at home don't know. VPN is a virtual private network, is what the VPN stands for. Go ahead, David. You sounded like you were going to jump in and describe. Oh, yeah, no, I was just going to say the same thing. And also, it's just like something that encrypts your web traffic. Well, what what it does is when you use your smartphone or your computer to go onto the internet and do all that stuff. When you go onto the internet, you are going onto the internet as yourself, as whatever your IP, computer, persona, accounts are online and in the digital space. When you use a VPN, you go into the network and then the network goes to the sites that you want to see. So that is how a VPN then becomes something that protects your privacy and shields your activity. That's how the VPN then encrypts everything. And also a sidebar to VPN bonuses are because you're going into the network and then going out into the Internet, it allows you to uh, visit uh, sites that are perhaps restricted with geography. So like if there's a uh, British... uh, British website that you want to access and you can't because you're not in Britain. If you went through a VPN, you probably could. Or, um, you know, sometimes if you're traveling, say you're in, you know, Thailand and you want to access your Netflix account and that's not going to work because of the different barriers, you go through a VPN and then you can do that. So that was actually the first use I ever had for a VPN. Like many years ago, I, I set one up so that I could buy music from actually a British retailer digital music retailer that wasn't available in the states for whatever reason so i just got around it i probably shouldn't be saying this in the air but (laughs) you know it's all free game it's all legal i mean as we know now as long as something looks legal it's okay you know so vpn so what's your vpn app so i was doing some research on vpn apps uh like i said i had just kind of a basic freebie one but uh i am now interested in this one it's called private internet access pia for short um and what yeah you know it does all the things that you said and also um they some some vpn uh companies and apps they do keep logs of your web traffic but pia does not so that's that's a bonus yeah definitely and i think actually i read that there was some kind of uh criminal case in the fbi like tried to subpoena logs on this person and they couldn't because he was using PIA which isn't exactly the best marketing well I think it depends on who you're marketing to for them I guess but it depends on who you're marketing to I can think of a lot of people who would be interested in that yeah but I mean yeah yeah, I think it's legitimate I'm concerned I don't want Congress uh, having access to that or corporations that's just ridiculous so to then just to build on your app what's the name of your app again uh, private internet access. Private internet access, and David is on the Android system. I'm assuming that it's available on on. Yes, and what's iOS great about them also. also is you can use it simultaneously on up to five different devices. So it's kind of like the family plan VPN in a way. There you go. So I'm going to build on that and say, um, get one for your mobile device because this is always the app segment. But there's a company called Avast. A V A S T. They have a couple different apps for your phone, but also for your desktop. Is it, so, is it Avast? Like Avast. Avast, you mateys? <laughs> Probably. I don't know. Okay. It came very highly, it comes very highly recommended to me from a friend who works in the tech uh, banking industry. So he's quite up to date on security. And it's the thing, kind of thing where you would load it onto your computer and then your phone and then everything else. So you would create a single sort of unified VPN for all your stuff, 
which I think is important and will step out of the app and into the uh, computer, laptop, desktop, because it's all the same and all important. So when you're going through your different security apps for your phone, don't forget about all your other devices. Don't forget about your tablet. Don't forget about your computer, your desktop, your notebook, and try and link them all together. Um, because it doesn't really make very much sense to protect yourself in one instance and then five minutes later sit down at your desktop and not be protected. So that's our, that's our PSA segment of the show. <laughs> Liz, do you have an app that you like right now? My life is like all about apps, so when I don't have to use them I try not to I know that sounds kind of weird but I actually try to detach myself from technology whenever possible well what's the app you use most every day then if your whole life is apps Instagram um Instagram for our name is farm it's like every day all day even if I'm not posting I'm interacting with people it's a really good way for us to like discover new food producers and just kind of grow our network okay do you have an app that you use to power down and not use your apps to be honest no you just turn um, it off. I just, yeah, like incense, my books. Like, I just try to not use technology when I don't have to. That's good. Yeah. It's good that you're aware of it and you're trying to modulate and moderate that. Yeah. You might be interested in last week's show, which was about um, every, almost annually, we have a, a disconnect from your tech show. And we have a acupuncturist wellness expert on named Paul K. Alexander, and his he was on last week and did a show about um, breathing and disconnecting and, you know, having a spring cleaning with your technology totally. and yourself. He's also done uh, an episode on actually disconnecting from your tech, which is how to go through your day and sort of decrease your tech usage. Awesome. One of my favorite ones, though, is episode 60, which is the spring cleaning episode from last year, which is doing a... 24-hour technology people food fast which is kind sounds very intense but very, it's sort of yeah. like the ultimate spring cleaning and reset and yeah. it it's sounds like a really kind of fascinating slightly intimidating Scary. and maybe great idea yeah yeah <laughs> it's only 24 hours though yeah i mean 24 hours isn't a long time i think it's just also how do you find a place where you can just yeah. do all of that right like I live with someone it would right. be really hard for me to just disappear right. for 24 hours but or I you'd have try. to wait until they went on a vacation or they went yeah. on a trip yeah. or you like, or I could just go or you Airbnb like or something <laughs> like that you, yeah. you know whatever. Yeah. anyway um yeah so if you want to unplug and disconnect episodes 91 39 and 60 might be cool, cool. for you to check totally. out totally thanks Patricia yes do you have an app that you like um well, I feel like I should be running out and doing the security apps, you know, immediately after this. Um, probably for me, um, it's old school, but my transportation apps, I'm, you know, going around on whether it's Metro North or Amtrak or the subway, I'm using the apps to say, when's the next train coming? Um, and just try to make it for me, that is huge decompression that I can just look. I know how much time I have when there's going to be a train, when there's not. And makes life a little bit less stressful than walking down on a platform and saying, oh, well, they're 20 minutes late and I'm now going to be late for my meeting. I do wish that the MTA had a better app and had better yeah. better scheduling and, and time notifications system-wide. Some oh, of the yeah. lines are good. Some of the lines better aren't. Better everything. The apps are not great. No, yeah, no. I, I mean, I, they're I, kind of terrible. Two, three, four, five. That's it, pretty much, you know, yeah. that you can get information. But I happen to live on that, so at least it... <laughs> It's, it's ground too. zero for me. <laughs> the first app I ever talked about when we started the app segment um, almost three years ago, this is our third year of Tech Bytes, which is exciting, yeah, it is. is an app called Is the L Train Fucked? Oh my gosh, yes. And like that's all it does. It, it's an L Train icon. It's on my phone. You open it up and it says, is the L Train effed? And it either says, yep or nope. That's going to be it. my new favorite app. I had to take the L to get here today, and I was, like, so nervous. I was like, I should just leave two hours before in case something happens. <laughs> exactly. I was hearing these, like, crazy stories about the L. Exactly. And it's actually, there it is. Oh, now the L train, it says the L train is fucked. Oh, yep. that's bad news uh -oh. for later Looks on. like I'm going to use a lift to get home. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, it's designed by an art director in advertising, a graphics guy, and he just pulls the MTA feed. Smart. 
And that's all it is. It's just, that's it. It's so elegant and well-designed. And then it says, <laughs> like yup or no. And that's it. Yeah. Abs, just shake it and see what happens. Exactly. Now with Yup, though, there should be, you know, like these are the beers that are, these are the bars that are offering a special on beer right now. Just, right. you know, head over and relax. <laughs> right. Well, eventually I'll build a show around the L train disaster that's coming to us all. Oh, oh yeah. Good yeah. luck with that. But do you think that we should do a, a show about um, internet and app and phone security should we do a system security show do you think with everything that's happening i think is so. that I kind think of that information helpful to people totally that would be so great do you, either I, of you have a vpn on your no do you know my boyfriend is like all about the like weirdo like just what did he you could like sign online and 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 i forget the word that he uses but you could like open up a new incognito like tab and like do all he's been showing me all these like tricks to kind of like just get away from kind of logging in all your info on your phone and, like, on your computer. And he keeps on repeating, like, oh, it's important, it's important. Every You know, all these companies are getting hacked. Like, all your information is getting put out there. So, I mean, even Shelly and I have encountered issues with, like, oh, PayPal is getting hacked. Like, maybe we shouldn't accept payments through PayPal, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I mean, just personally, but also if you're a small business owner, like, security is super important. Absolutely. And I think, too, you know, you're talking about PayPal. There's this level of distrust across the board, right? And if, if you could do a show and start talking about the different kinds of apps and, you know, give them a seal of approval, I think that's just really helpful. Payment and security and secure payment. Totally. <laughs> so this is a good segue, Liz, nice segue into if you're a small business owner. <laughs> Very nice. So every now and again, we do a boot camp style show on Tech Bytes, which is meant to really be informational services to folks out there who are in the food business, whether it's a restaurant or a product or a service or a piece of tech. So much of the food tech industry and world is about starting something new. It's about solving a problem. It's about creating a better version of something. It's about you know, being inspired to you know, fix something or uh, create, fill, in, fill a need that, that's been there that hasn't been addressed. And when you are doing something new, you're probably starting a new business. And the other thing that's interesting about the food tech space is that a lot of people who jump into new businesses are not from any of these businesses. You have a lot of people who were in finance, but now want to work in food delivery and people who were, you know, in law who want to make, uh, who make amazing granola and now want to have a product. And so you have people coming from different professions into the food profession. So there's, there's a lot of ramping up and there's a lot to learn. So we try and address different parts and pieces of it to make it, um, a little more understandable and easier and hopefully uh, provide people with some information that will help them in their own entrepreneurial endeavors. So Food Business Boot Camp, as I said, Liz has a company called Our Name is Farm and it's data-driven consulting. They have a social mission to sort of rehabilitate the local food economies. But data-driven consulting and sustainable and food economies are not things that I would necessarily put into the same sentence, because when we think about farms and food economies, we're not really thinking about data and spreadsheets. Well, we're not, but we should be. And, um, and I think that that's, you know, a lot of what Patricia and I have been talking about over the last, I don't know, six, eight months. Mm -hmm. Um, really what put it on the radar for us is a, just like a need for our clients to have a more, uh, direct, impact on their investments like if they're they don't have a ton of money so if they have money they want to know that they're investing it for something that makes sense for the future so information that is correct and um, a good representation of their target audience um, if you're talking about market research but also from a tech perspective you have a lot more players in the game now uh, like urban growers and stuff that are using tech and data to grow you know, better products and like lettuce or microgreens or whatever it is. And, and they're kind of like expanding that to, to other aspects of, of agriculture, et cetera, et cetera. So you have this like shift from, you know, just kind of, uh, this like feel, right? Like this knowledge that farmers have and have had for a really long time. Uh, and there's this like kind of panic that's happening. You know, the average age of the U S farmer is 58, um, we don't have as many people coming in as we do going out. 
Uh, and, and there's this really big question of like, how are we going to provide for ourselves? So younger people are coming in and realizing, you know, this space could be transformed a little bit. Like maybe we're really not into farming in a field and like digging up all these crops or whatever it is, but we are into finding technological solutions um, that are basically data based uh, in order to solve these like food problems that we have in our local economies. It's a very interesting marriage of, you know, what you referenced at the beginning of your answer, which is an emotional feeling, an emotional feeling about food and the environment, a philosophical idea about the earth and the food and the environment and where we want to go. And then pairing that up against, you know, to make that actionable, it has to be sort of black and white and ones and zeros and, and numbers. I think that's the most delicate um, part uh, of balancing this act, right? Like, even if you want to, for example, go into logistics, it's nice that you want to help everybody get their food to places, um, but actually figuring out how that works on a small scale for small farmers is a huge headache, and I have yet to meet somebody who can crack the code. So it's always data-driven. It it has to be in order to be financially successful. Uh, and I don't think that there's very much room in the future for just like, oh, like if these crops succeed, they succeed because nobody wants to go into a profession where like their entire life is dependent on mother nature. That doesn't really make sense for the future. So I think that especially with things like climate change, we have to take this more seriously. And from a farming perspective, data is really important. And then if you kind of translate that into value added production you also have this like kind of emerging scene of like people wanting more information that's like real and database so that they can make smart executive decisions about how to spend their money smart executive decisions on how to spend their money wow that's a that's a tall tall order um, when we come back, we are going to dig in with a sort of uh, step-by-step idea of if you have a food business, how you can kind of get your own spreadsheets going. But right now, we are going to find out who is making the top executive decisions about smart ways to spend their money supporting Heritage Radio Network as an underwriter. Ooh. love craft beer the diversity of styles and flavors the stories of small brewery businesses and the communities behind today's craft beer movement if so you'll love craftbeer.com published by the brewers association whether you tasted your first craft beer 30 years ago or just caught the bug last week craftbeer.com is the number one destination for beer education news and recipes looking for a local brewery Use the Internet's most robust brewery finder to discover your new favorite place. Want to get geeky about your favorite beer style or find the perfect pairing for dinner? Craftbeer.com is the leading authority and can help. Celebrate the best of American beer. Visit craftbeer.com today. Hey, are you a Heritage Radio Network member yet? Membership not only supports the production and broadcast of this show, Tech Bytes, but also comes with some perks. All current members are invited to our new monthly happy hour series, Books and Brews. The first one is going to be on April 12th at Three Brews at Franklin and Kent in Greenpoint with my fellow HRN host, Kathy Irway, who has the show Eat Your Words. And she will be talking about her new book, The Food of Taiwan. You can meet other HRN members, get a signed copy of The Food of Taiwan, enjoy some beer from our HRN business members threes, and donate and meet other hosts, potentially like me. If I'm there and you're there, we could meet. So log on to heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate. If you designate your donation to Tech Bytes, I will send you something special in addition to my undying love. And I hope to see you there on April 12th. That's my PSA. For Heritage Radio. So we are here on Tech Bytes talking with Liz Vaknin of Our Name is Farm and Patricia Duffy, who is a consultant and mentor with some local food tech groups like Brooklyn Foodworks and the Community Table at NYU. 
And we are about to get into, really, we can talk a lot about data-driven, this, that, and the other, and, and things like that. But at the end of the day, I think people really want to know, what exactly does that mean, and how exactly do I do that? So the three of us had a conversation earlier this week about how to best kind of follow the dancing feet and make this uh, sort of manageable and bite-sized pieces. And I think one of the one of the easiest ways to do it is to just follow the storyline of perhaps a, a new business that would be coming into being. So I know you both have worked with companies that have uh, food products that they want to develop and bring online, and that might be the easiest thing. Somebody, I'm sure there's at least one or two people listening who have an amazing food product that they are getting ready to bring to market or already have brought it onto market. What's the first thing you tell people when they say to you, I have this amazing recipe, I make the best thing in the world, and I want it to be my business, and what do I do? First thing I always say is, um, first of all, congratulations. That That's great, and I love the passion you have about that. And then I say, you know, who else thinks it's? My whole family and all my friends. Who else? <laughs> and then we, then we, we, we continue. It's, I, I basically, you know, will first get someone to really identify who, who is the market for this and why. And why would, as you mentioned earlier, you know, is your product something better, cheaper, so what if I think I know who my audience is? What if I think my audience is going to be um, foodies, men and women, age 25 to 55, and anybody who you know loves like great, healthy, organic food? What if I just have an idea of who it is, but I don't know definitively? Does that make a difference? Yeah. It, yes. I mean, if, if you think you know, and even if you don't know, test it. You know, figure that out because um, to your earlier comment about my family loves it, um, I think a lot of people look around at people who are like themselves or who are part of their network, and if they like it, they think they've got a market for it. And they, as Liz said, it is emotional, so they start plowing in and plowing in money without having answers to some really fundamental questions. So Liz, I come to your consulting group and I say, I have this amazing, you know, I make amazing apricot cookies. How do I test that? How do I test if it really is amazing? Or what's my first step before I, I do dump a bunch of money into it? Right. So um, I think that the, f the first thing that you would have to do is kind of see what everyone else is doing, right? You're talking about cookies. So I would say start with what other companies are selling cookies, what the like specific niche of your cookies is going to be. So if you're trying to be organic or if you're trying to be a certain like image with your cookies um, in terms of your branding, then you might just want to look in that specific niche market. But cookies is really general. So you want to break down as much as possible and identify like the real target audience. Uh, and in order to do that, um, a lot of the times people just start small. Um, they test it with friends and family. They try to do pop-ups, stuff like that. But um, a lot of the times they just don't have the money to do things like focus groups, although um, that would be the most ideal way to, once you finally have your product, test it. Um, but there's a lot of I can't stuff. just do market research online. I can't just Google, like, these are the cookie companies. These are... Right. So there's a huge time, right, that exists between you doing market research and kind of conceptualizing and testing your product and then actually arriving at a product that's market ready. Um, so in between that process, you have to do a few things. You have to identify who your target audience is. You have to identify who your competition in the market is. And then you also have to like refine your product to make sure that it's what you would want to pitch or sell to investors or to grocery store shelves. What does refine your product mean? Um... Well, there are just certain things that need to be taken into consideration. So let's say you make these cookies at home. Um, they don't have a preservative in them usually. So you're talking about a product that, you know, you're baking for your friends, you're bringing over to a party, it's eaten that evening, maybe the morning afterwards or two days later, but it's not really sitting on a shelf in packaging for weeks at a time. So there are certain things that you need to take into consideration when you're creating a product that make it shelf stable or whatever it is, depending on the product it is that you're making. So longevity and the life of the product is something that probably a lot of people don't take into consideration, especially if they're utilizing that oh-so-popular methodology of growing a business, which is 
um, you know, pop-ups and food trucks and, you know, open markets and things like that where you make something at home or in a space and then you do take it to like Smorgasburg or you take it in a truck and it sells out like that day or the next day. Right. So I think that the biggest uh, thing that we try, excuse me, to point out to people is that there's a huge difference between like what your family and friends will tell you um, about your product. And it's not because, you know, they're not, you know, well-meaning or, uh, you know, they're just trying to be super nice, but maybe they don't have the knowledge um, to give you the right feedback uh, and tell you, you know, what your product is actually worth out in the market. So when you test people that maybe come from the same background as you or, you know, obviously have some sort of shared communal aspect with you, you might not be reaching the real target market. So, Patricia, how do you tell people to get to the real target market and do the real testing if you're a little scrappy startup? Well, your cookies in a basket, you know. Right. Well, luckily, luckily, we are in a world right now where there's a lot of attention and interest in scrappy startups. So um, and certainly being in in New York, Brooklyn, there are, you know, any number of pop ups and markets, et cetera. I'm I've been dealing for the last couple of months with um, artisan fleas which, you know, sets up every weekend um, in, in Williamsburg. And we've been developing ways to bring food products in. And it's a great environment for someone who's trying to get some feedback because it's a really nice, uh, large group of people. And the idea first is to get some exposure. As Liz said, you know, you've got that opportunity not only to, to sell but to sample. And I advise people take advantage of that, even if it's just a matter of getting people's email addresses so that you could later do some sort of a survey with them or observe who's liking it, who's not. You know, are you have only women coming, you know, only men, whatever. How do you quantify the feedback while it's happening? Is it is it enough to say at the end of the day, wow, I sold all my cookies, people loved them? So I think uh, one tip that we tell people is to try to have more help when you do these events so that you're totally free to actually pay attention to what's happening like for your brand at that exact moment. So have somebody else, you know, train somebody to be a brand ambassador and sell your product efficiently while you're there. But you should be sitting there from the corner, you know, talking to people, socializing, asking them questions, like Patricia said, getting them to sign up for emails, et cetera, et cetera. Um, It's really hard to quantify it in person, which is why things like further data research like should be kind of considered when you're developing your actual marketing campaign but it's a huge plus i think for small business owners that larger companies don't have where they can come in and like interact with their target audience frequently and really get firsthand feedback from what their customers actually think about their product would you take notes would you set up a spreadsheet on site and you know record people's responses or ask the same questions and see what answers you got would you do that kind of thing because that typically is what people would be doing right behind the two-way mirror at an actual focus group exactly you know dinner lab who you know which is no longer with us um but they were working with chefs you know not not the top chefs, if you will, or the celebrity chefs um in doing these pop-up dinners and they handed out little cards, you know, to get feedback, you know, and it was something that literally, I mean, totally manual process, not doesn't fall into into the category of, you know, this was great technology, but it was a recognition that here's a way to get feedback from people. Um, And when I'm dealing with a client, you know, I'll say, you know, if if that's the the cheap way to do it, let's do it and and plow through it. Um, And the only thing I add is let's make sure that we understand who is filling this out so we can come back and say, all right, we, we are getting a better handle on who our target market really is. So what do you do once you have that information? How much of it do you need? Like how many times would you have to do a market event uh, like Artists and Fleas? Would you need to do that once, twice, a year, a season? How how do you know when you have enough feedback to move forward with or to make a decision? Well, because the startup world, on the one hand, is meant to be agile and take in a lot of feedback and then pivot immediately. And sometimes I think that pivot happens too soon where they don't have enough, you know, oftentimes startups don't leave enough time for a true feeling or traction to build and they get a little bit of feedback and then they pivot and move on. My opinion is that you, um, you really can't stop ever 
no doing this like you're developing a brand and your brand is going to develop over time and i just don't think that you should ever stop collecting data or ever stop doing these experiential approaches where you're bonding with your target audience i think it's critical to a brand development and it doesn't matter how big you are um you should be consistently um investing in these types of opportunities for your brand because it's a really raw form of feedback that i think really helps to shape certain products within a brand that you just can't get from people sitting in a room talking. I, I definitely agree, and I think also that so often you've got this passionate food entrepreneur, and they are they're letting it grow or they're making it grow sort of organically. And yes, you know, I'm making my cookies and I'm getting out to people, and they don't look through the whole process of you know where they ultimately need to be. So, you know, decisions that have to be made along the way, such as the ingredients that you are ultimately going to put into your cookie will determine whether you can scale, what your pricing is going to be, what markets you can essentially be at going down the road, um, and, you know, what your whole financial makeup will be ultimately, how you can deal with a co-packer. And this is not to create the scary format. This is to say, understand that these, these different forks in the road are going to come up and you want to make sure that you've got a handle on the data going forward so that when it comes to all right i've got proof of concept i know people will buy this at this price then you have a sense of okay i've got i've got a situation where i can distribute via retail i want to get on food 52 i want you know whatever and make those kinds of decisions so it's sort of like understand that path and then if you're gathering information along it you can go forward the, the alternative when people don't do that is so often the pivots in food can be so expensive. I mean, I've seen clients who are, they're doing a, a, a package dessert or someone who's doing a condiment. And they've made these decisions such as their packaging or their labeling without getting input. And they find it's not flying off the shelf. They need to change it. And it's you know, thousands and thousands of dollars, and many times they have to shutter because they they didn't get input and they've run out of cash. So, Liz, I know that part of what you do with your clients is to do the cost analysis. So I think to Patricia's point, starting with the product itself, with the different ingredients, how that impacts things, and then not just the product itself, but how it can be produced and packaged and which markets it can go into. How does somebody take a... Uh, home recipe that you're going to maybe, you know, make a batch of like 60 and then a couple hundred and then, you know, you sort of scale it up. How do you scale up the recipes and then do the costing? Because it's not actually as easy as just multiplying the recipe for, you know, two dozen cookies by five to get 10 dozen cookies. Totally. So um, finding the recipes is like the easiest part of it because you're just, you know, scaling up your recipes. But it's really the sourcing lines that are the like the prominent kind of issue, I should say, that it's not like insurmountable, but it's definitely something that needs to be consistently um, updated or changed uh, depending on your output, right? So if you're starting at home and just baking a few cookies, you're probably going to get your flour, um, your butter, et cetera, et cetera, like at a place like Whole Foods or Fairway or your neighborhood grocery store. Um, once you move into production, Um, that's a little bit larger, maybe you're doing some kind of pop-up or like an urban space market or something like that, you're going to start to need a larger supplier. um, And you're probably going to go to a place like Baldor or something like that that's going to be able to sell you like 50-pound bags of flour, et cetera, et cetera. Your prices are going to consistently change. Obviously, the more you're purchasing, the cheaper you're getting your products for. And um, that volume also helps you scale. But it's not just a question of, um, what you're purchasing. It's also a question of where you're making it, right? So then you also have this added, like, point of consideration of, like, okay, you used to bake at home. Now you're ordering from Baldor and you have all this flour and you have all this output, but where are you going to actually cook from? So you have to get a commercial kitchen. And then you kind of scale up to a co-packer from there. So there's, I think, three definitive stages when you're kind of creating this product. Um, and the sourcing and the cooking kind of, or location changes throughout. Before we move on from ingredients, Patricia, what did you mean when you said that the type of ingredients you choose will determine what retail you're in, will determine where you can sell and will 
determine, you know, other things. Talk a little bit about what that means. Okay, and it it actually plays back to the whole recipe, you know, Mm -hmm. concept. Um, And essentially what I'm, I'm saying is that when you are choosing your ingredients. Let's let's stick with cookies. Okay. And you you're starting with, you know, you're doing well, you, actually if you're selling it you're going to be in a commercial kitchen here in New York. I think our cottage laws are a little different, I yeah. think. So, you're you're pr- producing that you want top of the line Kate's butter from Maine and you're, you know, got this certain kind of flour, etc. And as a result, your your price is a certain um is certainly going to be high. Um, however, you are finding that to your customers, that's worth it to them. They'll pay the premium, et cetera. Um, when you start getting to making a decision as to going further afield and growing your business, those ingredients, you want to take a step back and say, you know, am I going to be able, to Liz's point, am I going to be able to source this in volume? Or do I have something that's going to be so hard to get that when I want to, when I get that order from Whole Foods, I'm not going to be able to fulfill it. Additionally, the ingredients you choose will determine, can I, can I show my product, say, at the natural food expos? If you have certain ingredients, you're not going to be able to. Um, so all of that is tied up. Now, when, when, a, when a food pr- producer goes from that commercial kitchen to, I really am ready to scale and I want to work with a co-packer, that's really when your recipes get turned into formulas, and typically, a co-packer will do that, and/or you can work with a food scientist to do it. And finding that co-packer is critical. Uh, it's a critical relationship because, particularly again, back to the ingredient piece, if they don't have access to the ingredients you're saying are critical, you probably are going to try to find somebody else. Or you may say, "All right, I want to work with them, but I need to change my ingredients." So. Those pivots, as I said, are so critical to the quality of the product, the nature, and then how you can ultimately market it. So it's just understanding those relationships so that you make some good decisions early on. So it sounds like the success of my cookie company kind of only has so much of it riding on how good the cookie is. A lot of the times, yeah, yeah, because your cookie could be amazing, but your packaging could be terrible and nobody will pick it up. Right. From the shelf. I and mean, so. we haven't even talked about distribution, you know. How but that's why that. experiential, like in-person experiences are really important because even if you don't have the financing to put together like a stellar packaging or something like that and you have limited, you know, shelf space where you are getting, you know, your cookies placed, um, these in-person opportunities where, you're, you're peop- where your target audience is experiencing your product are critical to your brand growth because word of mouth is really, you know, a good way to develop your brand identity and tell your story and get people to feel like unofficial sort of brand ambassadors. I mean, I've definitely experienced this where I've fallen in love with a product so much that I just go around telling everybody about it and they're just like, Liz, shut up, like about, (laughs) you know, this bacon or shut up about this chicken or whatever it is. Um, I don't want to hear anymore, but it's really just from a place of me feeling like I had a connection with the person who made it, um, me feeling like ownership in that connection and just like wanting them to do good. So I think that that just naturally happens with a lot of people, even if they're not really intense foodies, they just like, oh, I got this really new, like good milk or yogurt or whatever it is. You should try it for breakfast. It's, it's good. And I think with your cookie company, we're also just talking about, you know, consumers buying this. There are other... There are other markets out there. So, um, you know, I've been dealing with someone who is working on a beverage. And, you know, we started out talking about getting it into retail shops or going to health food, you know, health health clubs, the Equinox or whatever it might be. And and then we started looking at food service, you know, and we and restaurants. And we realized that you could do so much more of an efficient, larger sale if you went in that direction. So that's another piece of, you know, of data gathering. And it, and it does require stepping back from what we sort of innately think of about the f- as the food business. You know, it's, it's steps A, B, and C and say, wait a minute, there are other outlets here that, you know, might be the way for me to go. Mm-hmm. I, there's, you know, someone at Brooklyn Food Works who's got a um, condiment related, you know, and he's finally realizing, my God, if I could produce these in just big drums and be getting them to bars... This would be so much more efficient. Completely for me. different packaging question. Different packaging question, um, but also a way to get more brand recognition. You know, and it's 
there are different paths to get to where you want to go. And that also circles back to the ingredient question, which is, depending on what your ingredients are, you may or may not be able to be on the shelf at a Whole Foods because they have specific ingredient standards for their products. Or you may or may not be able to be in a super high-end restaurant that's looking for a specific ingredient type, but you might be able to be in something a little more mass. It's not even just ingredients. Like recently I heard, I was talking to a friend of mine who works for a large dairy uh, co-op and she was saying that, you know, Whole Foods wasn't into carrying their product because it said local on it. And like Whole Foods wants to be the local people. Like they don't want somebody else's branding to say local on them. So it's also like, okay, well, I'm not going to change my branding just to get placed at your store. But then, you know, you also have to take these things into consideration when you're not just doing ingredient sourcing also, but when you're doing branding as well. Well, and then there's the other, which then becomes a tangential question based on your dairy example, where maybe your friend doesn't want to change their packaging but maybe your friend would put their product into a Whole Foods branded container right. as the amazing local so milk. They were and then maybe offered, balance out more money in brand, but volume in this. They were and so. interested in doing that. But I, I mean, Whole Foods was interested in bottling their milk under their brand, but they just weren't open to it. I think right. that like there's just also like a pride that goes with developing your brand. And like if somebody won't accept it as is and you're in a position where you can turn that down, that's also a great thing. I think different people have different or different businesses have different goals for what they want their brand or company to grow into. Totally. Yeah. We're out of time. Oh my. My gosh. Right. I I tell (laughs) everybody before the show starts, I tell everyone it's going to go really fast and people look at me and they, I I get the sense that they kind of don't believe me. And then it happens and they always say, oh my God, I can't believe it. That was 45 minutes. Before we go, typically at the end of each show, I like to ask people for a little bit of advice uh, that listeners can use in their day-to-day lives. Although a lot of this show was kind of based around giving advice. Um, but to Liz, I would say, you know, you do consulting work and, uh, social media and marketing work for companies. And you talk about Instagram being, you know, part of the lifeblood of your business. What's your advice to somebody as to how to best market their brand on Instagram? I think the one thing that we tell people is to always remember that you are the only person who could tell your story the right way. Um, Trusting somebody else to tell your story isn't always um, ideal unless you could really, you know, imbue in them, like, the importance of um, what it is that you're doing and why you're doing what you're doing and why your product is special, Um, which is why Shelly and I don't ever agree to, like, manage people's social medias because we'd rather train them and teach them how to tell their own story um, and do it efficiently, you know, artistically, whatever it is, according to their aesthetic on Instagram, as opposed to just doing it for them. I think that, A, that empowers you as a business owner because you're in control, but also I think that you form a more personal connection with your audience. Um, And, yeah, like, why rely on somebody who's a stranger to, to tell what it is that you're so passionate about when you do it best? So I would say own own it and, like, even if you think that you suck at Instagram, like try to take classes, do a little bit better, but always try to retain control of your product um, through the storytelling aspect of it. That's great advice. And a different point of view about Instagram, which is really nice to hear, especially coming from somebody who potentially could sell that service. So I think it's an extra, you know, sort of an extra good piece of advice. Patricia, you spend a lot of time, you know, consulting with people and mentoring people, so many, uh, part, you know, part of the startup culture and so many people are looking for help in their business. They're looking for advisors. They're looking for mentors. They're looking for people to help them. They're looking, you know, for a list of advisors to put on their website so that people think they're legitimate or they're going to be growing in the right direction. What's your best advice to a startup business on how do you pick a good mentor or advisor? Because I've, I've, I've worked with some startups where they picked advisors that didn't really help them or further the cause or maybe had great marquee value but didn't really contribute or, you know, different kinds of things. And it, 
having a mentor and an advisor is so much a part of today's, you know, startup entrepreneurial and even women in business, I think, landscape. How do you pick a good one? How do you pick a good one and approach somebody and get them to be your amazing mentor advisor? I think I probably give them the same advice as I do when when I'm asked about investors. And that is, these are important relationships and partnerships. And some people may disagree with me, but I think good partners bring different things to the party. So if you are looking for a mentor, an advisor, look for someone who's going to fill some of your gaps. You know, if, if you're great at finance, you don't need someone, no matter how big the marquee value may be, to do that. But if you feel like I need some help with, with marketing strategy or producing the product, something like that, um, I'd say look for someone who fills the gaps and, and also just shares your enthusiasm, you know, about your product. Because, I, I mean, I, I deal with a lot of different people. people. And some people I'm going, you know, I'll help with any ideas. But then there are certain that I realize I am so on board, you know, with your mission. And you just sort of naturally bring a different level of um, energy to it. So. so that's great advice. Look for people who have the skills that you don't and the knowledge that you don't. But yeah. make sure everybody has the same level of enthusiasm. Yeah. It's good advice for business and for life, maybe. So I want to thank Liz Vaknin from Our Name is Farm. If you want to get in touch with her, you can go to ournameisfarm.com or follow her on Instagram at ournameisfarm. Patricia Duffy, thank you for coming. She is at Brooklyn Foodworks as a mentor, also at Community Table for NYU. If you want to get in touch with her, you can email her at pduffynyc at gmail.com. And if you want to get in touch with us at Tech Bytes, do you want to hear a show about personal internet security? Would you like to have more boot camp episodes? Do we need to regularly program ways to disconnect and, and get away from your technology? Let us know. Let us know what you think of the shows, what you want to hear, what would be helpful. You can get in touch with us, techbytes at heritageradionetwork.org. And we are, too, on Instagram and Twitter, techbyteshrn. We're also on Facebook. And we are also here every Thursday at 11 a.m. We're also 24-7 on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. I'm Jennifer Leitze. This is Tech Bytes. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.